He didn't sign the Declaration of Independence. He wasn't even considered one of America's forefathers. Nor was he the drunken clown as Shakespeare's character of him would lead you to believe. He was, however, a man who helped settle two of England's colonies, a signer of the Mayflower Compact, and an Indian ambassador for the New World. Let me share with you how this opinionated innkeeper's story has impacted a nation. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. The Virginia Company was charged with settling colonies in the New World for the glory of England. They were to be self-governing and its main purpose was to find gold, silver, and other minerals or profits to pay back the investors. The company chose its own leaders and officials, and they were responsible to provide settlers, ships, and supplies to ensure success of the colonization. It is thanks to the many letters and journals and secretaries of the company and settlers that we have so much information about how the colonies grew, their shortcomings, and the intimate details of day-to-day life. William Strachey was one such scribe and thirsty for the knowledge of the New World and its inhabitants. He longed to be known as a poet and author and hoped his new adventure would help him accomplish this. He signed on as a farmer for Virginia Company since the position of secretary was already taken. Because of his careful notes and manuscript and being BFFs with William Shakespeare and Ben Jonson, that our boy Stephen Hopkins was put on history's radar. Strachey's narrative, The True Repertory of the Wreck and Redemption of Sir Thomas Gates Knight, gave full account of his participation in the Truth is Stranger Than Fiction tale that Stephen Hopkins was very much a part of, then gave Shakespeare the inspiration for his last play called Tempest. Shakespeare was known to borrow ideas from others, so imagine Strachey's surprise while sitting at the Blackfriars Theater and seeing his letters transformed into a stage play, giving him no credit, but using some of his exact phrasing. Thus, with the popularity of Tempest, it left no room or interest for his manuscript. Have I lost you? Let me back up a bit. Stephen Hopkins was a common man. He was born in England to common parents and married into the tavern life as his wife's family ran a local inn. But as his family grew, he sought out work as a minister's clerk whose job involved reading psalms to the workers of the Virginia Company. In 1609, his ministerial duties took him aboard the ship Sea Venture, bound as a supply ship for the New World, and England's second attempt at a settlement, Jamestown. The ship was one of nine that promised to bring food, tools, new settlers, its new governor, Sir Thomas Gates, and introduced Strachey to Hopkins. In May of 1607, 104 men and boys landed and broke ground for what would become Jamestown. Jamestown was depicted as an earthly paradise in a promotional pamphlet saying that the first settlers were, quote, ravished with the admirable sweetness of the stream and with the pleasant land trending along either side. 
For those who were concerned of the savages, the pamphlet continued, the use of guns and armor was endorsed if the gifts of Christianity and Western civilization were not readily accepted, meaning, quote, our soldiers trained up in the Netherlands to square and prepare them to our preacher's hands, end quote. And to ease any fears of the ocean crossing, the pamphlet continued, quote, most winds that blow are apt and fit for us, and none can hinder us. The promise of riches and precious metals encouraged folks to raise their hands to the prospect of owning their own parcel of land and share in the profits. But if that wasn't good enough, the Black Plague was daily sweeping away lives by the thousands. And so the English noblemen, artisans, farmers, and laborers alike set out willingly to the New World. In June of 1609, Stephen Hopkins left his wife and three children, and from the River Thames, the sea venture headed out into the open waters. They were already two months into their trip, and more than halfway to their destination, when the flotilla of ships were hit by a vicious hurricane. For three days and three nights, the waves swirled up and tossed the boats, challenging them to stay upright. One ship was swallowed up completely taking its stock and crew down with it. The Sea Venture, which was the largest of the vessels and carried most of the supplies and most of the prominent passengers, was assumed lost at sea. But it struggled against the constant battering to carry its passengers to safety. It was damaged and water was pouring in through separated planks on the hull. Everyone on board, noblemen and common men alike, pumped water from the hold while others poured out buckets of water over the side in the attempt to save their lives. The water found new ways to seep in even though they attempted to patch up the holes with everything from cloth to salted beef. They were exhausted and at their end. The more they poured water out, the more water poured in. They were worn down, their muscles ached, their bellies were empty, and they were tired. The crew and passengers had finally succumbed to their fate when someone shouted, the sighting of land. Hearing the news of land, Strachey would write, they grew to be somewhat revived, being carried with will and desire beyond their strength. Every man bustled up and gathered his strength and feeble spirits together to perform as much as their weak force would permit him. The sea venture turned toward the island onto a reef about a mile from shore, the survivors scavenged what food, weapons, and tools they could and took all 153 souls to shore. The exhausted, nearly drowned voyagers were confronted with a tropical paradise. Plenty of fish, fruit, ample timber, fresh water sources, birds, and wild pigs. Bermuda had everything they needed and was a far cry from the situations happening at Jamestown. While the lost ship of England's third resupply attempted to get their bearings, Jamestown was in utter turmoil. The new settlers were made up of noblemen with titles who thought it beneath them to work, inexperienced farmers who came on the journey for a chance at a new life, and soldiers hired to protect and fortify the settlement. This led to a large number of mouths to feed and no one planning for a future to feed them. No one planted, but instead tried to barter with the local natives. But when Indians grew tired of supporting their unwelcome, needy neighbors, the settlers resorted to stealing and killing the natives. 
When the other ships of the third resupply showed up in Chesapeake Bay, there were only about 40 lean and starving men left. The new ships, which were supposed to be a saving grace to the settlers fighting for their life, instead, it plunged them deeper into physical depression. The new settlers, barely surviving the storms, stumbled off the ships to the welcomed dry land, battered and beaten, with hardly any supplies. There was little to no food available before they got there, but now, the combination of original settlers and the new arrivals, they greedily devoured what they had, not thinking about their tomorrows. It was May of 1609 when the on-again, off-again president, John Ratcliffe, who had left the colony in order to bring back more supplies, returned with more food, 300 more settlers, but it just wasn't enough. The damage was already done, and they were at the mercy of the Indians once again. Meanwhile, back on the island of paradise, most of the castaways from the sea venture are perfectly happy to stay in their new surroundings and don't want to leave. They had settled into a life with gardens, fishing boats, and nets, huts, and a possible future. The climate is so temperate and agreeable to our English constitutions, one castaway would later write. Governor Thomas Gates had no intentions of staying, but rather completing his mission to get to Jamestown, Virginia. He believed that the obligation of all lay with the Virginia Company that had financed the fleet and supplies and to whom everyone on the island pledged loyalty. He ordered a group of men to start building a boat from the scavenged planks of the sea venture and the Bermuda cedars found on the island, saying that every person who rode the sea venture was bound by contract and reputation to go to Virginia. Building of the new ship was slow going as the men did not want to hasten its completion. Finally, a group planned to escape and make a new home for themselves on another island. But Gates discovered their plot. Convicting them of mutiny, their punishment was that they were sent to that other island, but without tools or food or supplies for several days. Near starvation, they were brought back and forced to beg for mercy. It is said that Gates was relentless in the treatment of the castaways. He gave them no opportunity for rest or leisure, kept a tight fist on how much food was doled out, and worked them from morning until night. They were counted in the morning and again in the evening to make sure no one attempted to abandon the camp. By January of 1610, one of the new hybrid ships was almost complete. The day of everyone leaving the island and sailing on to the lies fed to them about the new Britain was almost upon them. Stephen Hopkins could stay quiet no more. He gathered a few of the settlers and reminded them that they had all contracted with the Virginia Company for X number of years, and in exchange for that contract, they would feed and clothe them and deliver them safely to Jamestown. But the hurricane thwarted the original plan and landed them in Bermuda. The shipwreck, Hopkins decided, dissolved their contract with the Virginia Company, and they were freed from any government of any man. Hopkins declared that everyone was free of their contract and could choose for himself if they would complete the boat and continue to Jamestown, strike out on their own, or create a new settlement right here. He went on to say that, quote, 
In light of the discovery of the potentially lucrative resources of Bermuda, they had a new obligation to claim Bermuda for the company. Similarly, they owed it to their families to seize the opportunity for enrichment they discovered by chance and at great risk to their lives, end quote. The people all knew how Gates felt about even discussing the matter of altering the course of the expedition and would not be tolerated, but listening to Stephen Hopkins speak for the people and for a future of their own choosing was very enticing. However, the plot had been discovered and this time Hopkins was put on trial on January 24th. He was chained and sentenced to death. After days of settlers begging for his clemency, finally Stephen Hopkins himself was put in front of the assembly to beg for his life. Strachey writes, So penitent was he, and made so much moan alleging the ruin of his wife and children in this, his trespass, as it wrought in the hearts of all the better sort of the company, who, therefore, with humble entreaties and earnest supplications, went to our governor, whom they besought, likewise Captain Newport and myself, and never left him until we got his pardon. End quote. Gates forgave the crime. The castaways had been on the island of Bermuda for eight months now. One final rebellion had reared up to attempt to stay on the island, but this time Gates had reached the end of his patience. The main perpetrator, Henry Payne, was condemned to hang immediately. Payne resigned to his fate and made the request that he was a gentleman. He requested a gentleman's death. Instead of hanging, he was allowed to be taken into the woods, placed against a tree, and shot. This marked the end to any more thoughts of remaining on the Bermuda Islands. Hopkins planted the seeds of a life in an ideal commonwealth, but it was not meant to be on the island, but glimpses of his thoughts will appear again. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people, just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar 
and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. By spring of 1610, two ships were complete and the castaways were put to the task of gathering food for the trip. 500 fish were caught, salted, and packed in barrels. Live conch in their shelves were immersed in seawater in barrels. Hogs and the large seabirds that were butchered and salted in turtles were caught, kept alive, by placing them on their backs for the voyage. The island was also a welcome place for hundreds of birds to come and nest, and eggs were easily collected. In May of 1610, almost a year after leaving England, the castaways set out for Jamestown, Virginia, once again. Trivia. Only one man died of the original 153, and then one was born. She was called Bermuda Rolfe. Her father was John Rolfe. And no, this was not Pocahontas, but his first wife, who gave birth to the first English Bermudian child. She would only live a few weeks. Another month following, another birth occurred. The first boy English Bermudian child was born, Bermudius Eason. He lived to see the Virginia colony and beyond. The Sea Ventures side trip to Bermuda had actually saved their lives. The winter of the 1609 to the spring of 1610 was named the starving time in the history of Jamestown. The struggle for enough food has always plagued the new colony, but when you add a fractured leadership, poor relations with an aggressive native tribe, dysentery, typhoid, the marshes ebb and flow of salt water, you have a pretty nasty recipe for failure. The Powhatan Indians retaliated by threatening to kill anyone who leaves the fort. The settlers trapped in their own fort resorted to tearing apart their structures for firewood, sneaking out game after dark, and burying their dead inside the walls of the fort. President George Percy writes, Indians killed as fast without the fort as famine and pestilence did within. They had long killed their horses for meat, and Percy writes, We were glad to make shift with vermin as dogs, cats, and mice. He also claims that the starving settlers resorted to cannibalism, quote, They dug dead corpses out of graves to eat them, end quote. The supplies that the Sea Venture were able to provide would only last them a short time. So, Governor Thomas Gates decided that they should abandon the settlement and sail for England. And just as they had gotten everything buried, packed up, loaded on their ship, and on their way, their path was blocked by the newest ship led by the new governor of the colony, Lord Delaware. He insisted that they turn around to salvage and rebuild Jamestown. And so they did. Stephen Hopkins kept his head down and his opinions to himself and really dug in helping to save the colony. Under the leadership of Delaware, despite the fact that he was on his deathbed for much of the time, his leadership was able to bring the colony back around. Hopkins became an asset to the colony, expanding his knowledge on the tribes and their languages. Farming and his oratory skills were still there, but he remained a student, 
learning the ways of building a colony. At some point, Stephen received a letter telling him of the death of his wife, so he joined the crew of a ship sailing back to London, England. Hello listeners, I'm Katie. And I'm Amber. And we are two hosts on Save Me an Isle Seat. A show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals, or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. At this point, we really don't know what Stephen Hopkins did to pass the time back in London, England, but he was successful. By the time Hopkins rejoins our story, he got remarried. This second wife was to Elizabeth Fisher. They had their first child together, plus his other three. He gained prosperity and had two men servants. In 1620, the Merchant Adventurers, which was a different group of investors that financed the sailing and planting of the new settlements, invited Stephen Hopkins to join the Mayflower voyage and stay to help the colonists with his advice. Knowing his way around new colonies and as a laborer was the adventurer's new way to ensure that the colonists strive to repay their debts. So, despite surviving a hurricane, getting stranded on a deserted island, being charged with mutiny, almost hanged, building two ships only to face near death and starvation, he said yes. September 6, 1620, Stephen Hopkins, his very pregnant wife, children, two servants, and all of their earthly belongings joined the other 102 passengers and crew on the Mayflower bound for the New World. There may not have been a hurricane this time around for Stephen, but his newest son was born on the ship as it fought the turbulent storms and violent waves. And while a baby is a thing of joy, and Stephen gets to have the honor of the only child born en route, baby boy Oceanus was born under the most terrible, unsanitary conditions. Because of the storms, there were to have been no dry beds, as the ship was leaking due to the extra weight and many suffered from seasickness. And because of the turbulence, no one was allowed to go to the upper decks for fresh air or, uh, relief. So, all they had were chamber pots. And I'm sure you can imagine that it would be difficult to keep a chamber pot still. After two months on the overpopulated and overstocked, cramped quarters of the Mayflower, fierce storms blew them off course, causing them to land further north than their designated lands in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, instead of Virginia. The provisions were running low, and it was suggested that they scout out the area and stay where they landed. Some of the passengers even went so far as to say that the contract made with the Merchant Adventurers of London was for Virginia, and since they were not safely deposited in Virginia, they believed that they were no longer obliged to uphold the original contract And once they stepped off the boat, they were a free agent in modern-day vernacular. Now, I won't mention any names, but they were quoted as saying, 
they would use their own liberty, for none had power to command them. Sounds a bit familiar, don't you think? The pilgrims desperately needed the help, so they agreed to establish their own government while still on the Mayflower, but were still abiding in their allegiance to England. The Mayflower Compact was created and signed by 41 men. It basically states that they must adhere to the government of the king, but within the colony, it would fall to a majority rules. We do by these presents solemnly and mutually covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. A few more words, some these and thous, 41 signatures, and it was done. Sixteen men left the ship to scout out the land. They found the remains of an Indian burial and stole the corn that was left for the Indians' afterlife. A second expedition was cut short due to bad weather, and a third time resulted in their first encounter with the Native Americans, in which they fired upon. The colonists decided to look elsewhere after not finding suitable grounds to host their new colony, but many feared that they angered the Indians for stealing their dead's corn and, of course, shooting at them. They backed out and moved the Mayflower with its uncomfortable and exhausted human cargo to their original destination of Plymouth Harbor. It was now December, and they spent three days scouting the land and finally agreed on a recently abandoned Native American site. Bad weather and a harsh winter kept the passengers on the Mayflower even longer than expected, and it surely aided in the deaths of almost half the original voyagers. Stephen Hopkins and his entire family managed to survive the first winter in the New World. Hopkins would be instrumental to the development of Plymouth. He helped in building the residences and common houses, and in the spring of 1621, he acted as host to their first Indian guest, Samoset, and invited him to stay with his family for the night. Because of his time with the settlers and the Indians in Jamestown, Hopkins became the assistant to the governor, and the first formal meeting with the natives was held at his home. The town grew thanks in part to Stephen adding ten of his own children to the mix, but he finally settled in to opening his own ordinary. An ordinary is another term for a tavern or an inn. They would offer drinks and food, sometimes games such as shuffleboard, and sometimes lodging. He kept his tavern and his stubborn ways until his death in 1644. It's been documented that he was reprimanded and fined for serving men in his house on the Lord's Day, and allowing his patrons to get drunk was also frowned upon, and also price gouging. Yeah, it was a thing back then, too. If you got caught charging more for your wine, beer, strong waters, or nutmegs at excessive rates, you would be fined. At his death, he was considered perhaps not rich, but he had done quite well for himself. He requested to be buried next to his wife, and to his remaining living children, he left his belongings in great loving detail. The 1600s was a time of great adventure for those who had the stomach for it, and Stephen Hopkins proved that he was quite an asset to the founding of this great nation and in part 
we can thank him for introducing, in a roundabout way, the acceptance of majority rule and a glimpse of what we would later call democracy. Bag of Bones is researched and recorded by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed, copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises. <laughs>